Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James Bijan, and Alastair Roberts. Brian Moots, as usual, is in the is in the control room, recording and uh, making this available to you all. Uh, I want to remind you uh, that as we have uh, a number of times on our podcast that we have a new app that's recently been released. There's a great deal of material on it. A lot of the stuff that's been available for free at Theopolis is on the app, but it's um, better organized. There's a paywall. You can get some of the app for free, but if you pay $7 a month or $70 a year, you can get behind the paywall. And there's uh, there are eBooks and conference lectures and lecture series and courses behind the paywall that are not available for free. And then even the things that are available for free are uh, available in a more organized format once you get past the paywall. So uh, we're organizing our different podcast series, for example, uh, into uh, an organized series rather than just having them uh, listed out in numerical order. All of the podcasts on the book of Acts are going to be in one place and all the podcasts on James are going to be in one place and so on. So uh, this this would be a, a great resource. Um, it's wonderful looking. Kudos to Brian Motes and uh, our son Sheffield, who put the app together in association with an app production company out in Moscow, Idaho. Really great looking app, and uh, it's going to be really useful. Uh, we're going to keep building it up with new material on a weekly basis as we can as uh, as we can sustain that pace. Recently, we uh, have uh, put a uh, an ebook version of Through New Eyes on the app. So if you want to have Through New Eyes in your pocket all the time, now you have a way to do it. It can be at your fingertips whenever you want to have it. So do check that out. Uh, go to uh, uh, you can go to our website and there's a link to the to the app registration, or you can go to uh, app.theopolisinstitute.com and you can register there. Uh, we are in. We were in the middle of a discussion of Deuteronomy four. We're in the midst of a of a podcast series on Deuteronomy, and we had gotten a good ways into Deuteronomy four. But Deuteronomy four is a massive chapter, uh, and it's a complex chapter with a lot of different moving parts. We talked about that last time, uh, and we talked about some of the major themes of the of the chapter. We talked about images, uh, why the Lord is hostile to images, why He forbids Israel to have images. Uh, we talked something about um, the role of Baal Peor and the event of Baal Peor uh, that's brought up at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 4. We went into uh, some detail talking about the imagery of fire that's found here in Deuteronomy 4 and also into chapter 5. The Lord talks about the fire that's on Mount Sinai uh, and the fact that he's speaking from the midst of the fire. Uh, he himself is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24 and uh, that, as Alistair pointed out in the in the last episode, the Lord's presence in fire becomes uh, an essential part of Israel's corporate life, and especially Israel's liturgical life. Approaching the Lord in the Old Testament uh, system is approaching fire. If you're a priest, you approach the fire that's on the altar. If you're a high priest on the Day of Atonement, you approach the fiery presence of God that's in the most holy place. Uh, if you're an Israelite, you're among those people who have gathered at the fiery mountain, uh, and then you are among the people who gathers for feasts and for worship at the tabernacle, which is an architectural image of the fire, among other things, and also is the residence of God's fiery presence. So uh, the presence of God in fire 
uh, is is uh, central to Israel's life as a people. And it's also, I think, a, a really uh, provocative image of God's character in, uh, itself. Uh, what does it mean to say that God is a consuming fire? We, we talked about that some. Uh, one of the things we, we, we did bring up was the role of the law uh, as a witness to the Gentiles, uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and following. This law, if they guard and do the law, then that law will be wisdom and understanding the sight of the Gentiles. Uh, and uh, that that's something that we had brought up, but Alistair wanted to start out this episode by expanding on that point a bit. It's noteworthy that Israel, from the very outset, has a mission relative to the nations. Abraham is called against the backdrop of the failure of the Babel project, and Israel is going to provide some sort of lesson to the nations. It will later be scattered among the nations. We can see Israel being a draw to the nations, for instance, in the time of the reign of Solomon, as people like the Queen of Sheba come in to hear the great wisdom of Solomon, which is in part, I think, a fulfillment of what is foretold and promised here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the promise that the law will be wisdom for Israel. And it seems strange to us that the law should be described in such a manner. Certainly, it would be a well-ordered society if they were run according to the laws that the Lord gives at this point. But later on in Scripture, it's very clear that the law itself is a source of wisdom for those who meditate upon it. It's not just a well-structured um, system of policies and laws for the ruling of a society. It's something that is desirable to make one wise. It is the means by which one of these great themes of scripture is reintroduced. We had it very well back in Genesis chapter 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but now this promise of wisdom is attached to the gift of the law. And Israel's attainment of the law, I think, is very much related attainment of wisdom is very much related here and elsewhere to their meditation upon the law. And the book of Deuteronomy is perhaps the greatest meditation upon the law that there is. It's an extended unpacking and exploration of the principles. Then the relationship between the core principles and extended applications and what results from this is Israel's fulfilling of a mission to the nations that is exemplary, that is giving the nations a sense of something that they will recognize, they will see Israel, and this will be something that they acknowledge to be wisdom. They have a sense that it, it resonates with the way that the world, the way the world it really is, but yet they would not have attained to this were it not for divine revelation that brings to light those things that are true about reality. And so Israel's vocation is um, very much related to this theme of wisdom in ways that maybe we don't pay enough attention to. And particularly within the reign of Solomon, we see that play out and in the wisdom literature that is associated with Solomon and others within that tradition. Yeah, I really like the connection you drew with uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's desirable to make one wise. And uh, the way that you gain wisdom from the law is by consuming it. You know, uh, one of the traditional ideas of what makes uh, clean animals clean, they're animals that, I mean, the text itself says the animal, they're animals that chew the cud uh, and have a divided, a divided hoof. So um, 
the the cud chewing has been seen as meditation on the law, uh, and that uh, that's the kind of it's it's through that kind of chewing and and musing uh, and consumption of the law that uh, we become wise. Which yeah, I think that's really that is a really important point that uh, the word of God is not given simply to direct actions that we do. It does do that, but the word of God is given to transform people and to make new people. Uh, and that's uh, part of that part of that transformation is the Lord making us wise by His Word. I wanted to go to uh, uh, kind of the, a, a tail end of the section that's talking about images in uh, Deuteronomy four. We 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 uh, focused a good bit of attention last time on the problems of images and icons and so forth, why they're forbidden. But I wanted to look at verse nineteen. I don't think we talked about this at all. There's a further exhortation that there's guard yourself lest you make any image. That's verses 15 and 16. And then that's uh, extended, implied guard yourself lest you lift up your eyes to heaven. So there's a couple of different d- kinds of betrayal that are being that are in view here. One of them is the betrayal of making something that you're going to bow down and worship and uh, prostrate to. But verse 19 says you also should not lift up your eyes to heaven, to the sun, moon, and stars, all the hosts of heaven obviously shouldn't worship those heavenly bodies. But what uh, what's intriguing about this is what it goes on to say, uh, that um, uh, the end of the verse is, those which the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven, which seems to imply that although Israel, having been forged in the iron furnace of Egypt as God's own personal possession, Israel is not supposed to lift their eyes to the sun, moon, and stars and the host of heaven. Other peoples can, and other peoples do. Other peoples do. It's almost as if the Lord is, well, it, it's not as if. The Lord has allotted these heavenly powers and heavenly bodies to them. And this could be taken as a hint, which we find some others in Deuteronomy, a hint that the Lord has uh, put the nations, the Gentiles, under various other kinds of powers and governments. The Lord, the Creator, is directly governing Israel, but He's delegated out government of other nations to angels, perhaps. But here, it's the sun, moon, and stars. And that is this a permission of idolatry? Is this a is this some kind of recognition of that while Israel is guided by the word that came from the fire, the nations are guided by what the Lord is showing them in the heavens among the hosts of heaven? Is there some kind of astrological thing here. Astrology, as it were, works for the Gentiles, but it's not what Israel's supposed to do. Or well, is there something else going on? What do you all what do you all think about that that uh, that weird concession at the end of verse 19? Do you think this is related to what we looked at in chapter one when Moses was, or was it chapter two? Oh, I'm sorry, it was chapter two when we're talking about Moab or Ammon, or Edom, and how the Lord brought them out and gave them their own land. Uh, there was an emphasis on the fact that the Lord had had done this before for these nations. You think this is related? So the Lord has uh, apportioned land to these people and dispossessed the others who might have been there beforehand. Has he also apportioned to them which seems odd to say, these uh, astral deities, if you will, um, 
I mean, even asking that question uh, seems like it's not the right question to ask, but there seems to be a relationship here between the two, the two things in chapter two and chapter four. Yeah, there does seem to be that relationship. I, I, I would obviously need to sort of think things through a bit more, but, but Peter, I, I was interested in your idea that kind of maybe there is a concession of, of sorts that the the nations can pay, I don't know, more attention to these sorts of things than Israel could or, or, or should probably, um, particularly because it, it brought to my mind Romans 10. Um, and so this nearness of the law is something that Paul particularly takes up in, in Romans 10 and, and says, you know, don't think of the uh, righteousness as by faith that comes through faith as something that is beyond you that you've got to go up to the heavens and get it, you know, the the, the word is near. So so Paul kind of builds upon that, but in, in exactly the same context as he talks about the gospel um, uh, going out, there is then in, um, where are we, in verse uh, uh, 18 of chapter 10, I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end um, of the world. This, this is contextually kind of God's, the way in which the heavens declare um, God's um, glory and, and righteousness, their, their voice has gone out. And I, I do wonder if there's something to the suggestion that the heavens declaring the glory of, of God can um, be more of a guide to the nations uh, as a whole in the absence of um, God's law than it should to Israel, who have this more direct and and more explicitly verbal um, revelation. But exactly where that takes me, I'd, I'd need to think through a lot more. That passage that you mentioned in Romans, of course, is taken from Deuteronomy 30. And there seems to be um, a challenge on many fronts to the sort of religion of the pagans, which would look up to the heavens for revelation or see some great epic quest or heroic journey as a means of an attempt to discover something that's this deep cosmic secret or overcome some fell beast to find this wisdom. And yet this wisdom is just given to Israel. There's no Promethean quest that is required. There's no need to um, search out the mystery of the of the stars and the heavens. They are, all of this is revealed to them by the Lord. And so this vision of Israel's receipt of revelation really stands as a great contrast to the sort of mythology of the pagans, to their their sorts of quests for wisdom, that although they might find things in part, ultimately they just do not have a word near to them in the way that Israel does. And, and yet this passage seems to be saying that that is something that has been allotted to them, at least for the time being. It makes me think of Acts 17 and Paul in Athens saying the times of ignorance now God has overlooked and he's calling all nations to repentance and to trust in Jesus who he's raised from the dead. Or Act or 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about the idols that the nations worship are actually fallen angels, demons. And so until the new world comes, until Jesus comes, there is this, this allotment of deities, of mythology to the nations. It also makes me think of 
Gerard's understanding of all this, where he says that although it's awful, the whole scapegoating regimen that's a part of all these pagan sacrificial rituals, and yet it's in some level, it kept the peace. It maintained some sort of order so that God's apportioning of these other small g gods to the nations was a way of maintaining some level of peace and order in their society until the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. Yeah, I was thinking of Acts 17 too, that um, uh, I think it's Acts 17 that had that uh, the King James Version translates as God winked at, he winked at idolatry, winked at sin. He's no longer doing that. There's a day appointed now on which all men shall be judged. Uh, and he's testified to this day of judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. So there's that uh, allotment to the peoples, the allotment of these uh, astral uh, deities or astral guides to uh, the nations has a terminus, and the terminus is the coming of Jesus. And now the God of Israel is no longer just directly ruling Israel, but now he claims rule over all nations through his son, Jesus. I mean, I also think of um, some of the post-Christian Greco-Roman discussion about the evacuation of the uh, of the uh, oracles. Plutarch wrote a, I think it was Plutarch wrote an essay on the way that the oracles went silent, mysteriously went silent at, after uh, uh, he doesn't. I don't. I don't think he connects it to uh, the coming of Christ. But it's in the aftermath of the coming of Jesus that these beings, something was there, some power was there, was communicating with people in some kind of fashion. But those voices are silenced. And um, this, you know, the church fathers mentioned this kind of thing a lot. That then uh, Athanasius has has this long section at the end of in, on the incarnation where he's talking about the effects of the incarnation, the effects of the resurrection of Jesus. And one of them is that he's vanquished all these other guides. So uh, it's, a, it's a temporary, this, and it's related, obviously, to the temporary division between Jew and Gentile, because, because that division has been overcome, and you have one Lord over Jew and Gentile, that means that it's no longer the case that the Gentiles are allotted these other, these other powers to govern them. Uh, they're now governed by the God of Israel, just as the Jews were. Well, I could skip ahead a little bit in the uh, in the chapter, verses uh, twenty three and twenty four have the the last of these "watch yourselves lest" or "guard yourselves lest" phrases, uh, and it's a warning against breaking the covenant by making images. And then verses twenty five to thirty one, Moses goes into kind of prophetic mode, and you could take it as a warning. It's set up as in 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 the, in the future when you've settled into the land, you've been in the land long. You must still remember this. Don't let the passage of time cause you to forget. You need to pass on this tradition, pass on the teaching from generation to generation so that you don't fall into this uh, veneration and worship of icons and, and, and images. But when that happens, and uh, it's almost, it's, it's a warning in a sense, but it also becomes kind of prophetic. It's not just if this happens, but when you forget, when you fall into this, then the Lord is going to scatter you among the people's. And part of the judgment uh, of worshiping images is that they're scattered among peoples and they themselves become part of image-worshiping peoples in their exile. Verse 28, there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. This is the kind of dynamic of uh, repeatedly in the in the Bible, in the book of Judges, maybe most obviously, 
Israel worships idols. They're given over to the peoples who worship idols to govern them and to oppress them. And then they turn back to the Lord. And that's the kind of that's the kind of dynamic that uh, Moses is predicting here, uh, and he's extending this out and and predicting exile as he does much later in Deuteronomy, toward the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy thirty, the passage that Paul is quoting in Romans ten. That also turns prophetic. It's not just a it's not just a warning passage, but Israel is not going to be able to uh, remain faithful to the Lord. They are going to break covenant, and so they're going to be scattered among the peoples. The prophecy extends beyond just the scattering, verses uh, 29 and following. Uh, there's a reversal. Once they're scattered, they're given over to serve these other gods, the gods of the nations. But that in that situation, they're going to seek for the Lord, and they will find him. The Lord is going to make himself available to them, even if they're scattered out beyond the land, even if they lost their uh, lost their residence in the land. The Lord is not is not going to be unavailable to them. Uh, and when they return to him and hear his voice, then the Lord is going to be compassionate, and he's going to he's going to restore them. Uh, he's uh, this uh, a series of uh, uh, reassuring negations in verse thirty one. He will not fail, nor destroy, nor forget. Uh, the Lord doesn't give up on Israel uh, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, and in spite of Israel being judged, the Lord hasn't forgotten them. Uh, and particularly, he hasn't forgotten the covenant. Um, the word covenant has been used several times in Deuteronomy 4. Earlier, it's referred, it refers to, it seems to be referring to the uh, statutes, the rituals, and the judgments that it, the Lord is giving. And keeping covenant means doing those things that the Lord has commanded them to do. Uh, more specifically, in verse 23, uh, keeping covenant has to do with not bowing down and worshiping images. Uh, and breaking covenant is when you do. Uh, make and worship images and and bow to them and serve them. Uh, but here in verse 31, the kind of undergirding of the covenant is the Lord's own commitment uh, to Israel, which is based on the love that he has for the fathers uh, and that love being persistent and relentless through generations following the fathers. He He loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He committed himself to them in his love uh, and because of the love that he had for them, he is committed also to their children and their children's children down through the generations. That commitment is not going to fail, even though Israel fails. Uh, every man a liar, the Lord is still true. That is something that we often see as a basis for prayer and petition, particularly in contexts of Israel's rebellion. We can think of, for instance, the events connected with the golden calf and Moses' intercession for the people, or elsewhere where Daniel's interceding for the people, or um, we find the psalmist speaking in such a manner. There's a sense of the Lord's word and love for his people as the basis of everything, and the covenant will fail um, if it depends upon the people um, themselves, because the people, for their part, will always fall short. And so later on in Deuteronomy, we have the promise that the Lord will circumcise their heart in chapter 30, verse 6. And of course, within the New Testament, we're told that the Lord found fault with the people. And so it's dealing with their side of the covenant, dealing with their failure and restoring them on the basis of the love that drives the whole covenant, um, that everything is going to be fulfilled. And so 
it's hard to understand these passages in Deuteronomy, it seems to me, without a sense of what Paul's talking about within his epistles, which is really exploring the way in which Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant commitment of the Lord. And without that commitment, nothing works. Right. And at the same time, there, there seems to be this um, slightly complex interrelationship or interaction between different covenants. Here, Moses is obviously talking about a covenant that Israel have entered into. Um, and it seems to be the terms of, of that covenant that relates in Israel's judgment um, specifically. Um, and so, uh, Anastasia, you mentioned Daniel, um, and Daniel talks specifically, you know, as it was promised in the law of Moses, you know, disaster would come and, and now it has. Um, and yet what's then remembered or here, I guess, not forgotten is the covenant with Abraham, Isaac and, and Jacob here, you know, with your fathers um, that he swore. And, and that seems, I don't know how best to put it, but seems somehow to underlie the um mosaic covenant almost as this backstop kind of thing that when um the penalty uh incurred as a result of breaking that covenant has come about that the um mercy promised to abraham and isaac and jacob then that can um kick in and that's of course precisely what moses himself appeals to in exodus um 32 when god is, is going to um destroy israel and start again with moses um uh, Moses then appeals to the promise made to uh, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob saying, you know, why should the uh, nations think that you've just chosen Israel to destroy them and that, you, and that you've sort of failed on your promises to, to the forefathers? And and so there, there seems to be that um, kind of sense in which the two covenants run and, and interact here. Yeah, I think that's very much what Paul is saying in uh, the central chapters of Galatians. Because the, the law has brought a curse, uh, but then Jesus comes in to bear the curse of the law uh, by going to the tree, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, so that the Abrahamic promise can be fulfilled. That's basically the, that's the logic of uh, uh, the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 3 in, in Galatians. And, and elsewhere in Galatians, there's this, uh, the, the, the Torah is given, the Torah as law is given as a means to fulfill the promise in the event it becomes an obstacle to the promise because of Israel's failure to keep it. But then the Lord himself breaks through that obstacle so that the Torah can be established as a means for bringing in the, uh, bringing in the fulfillment of the, of the promise to Abraham. I think what you're describing James is exactly the, the relationship that, that uh, Paul is describing. So the, the two covenants are kind of not kind of extrinsic to each other, so you have this Abrahamic covenant. The the Mosaic covenant is a uh, is a in in a sense a contradiction of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I think it's intended to be a means for the realization of the Abrahamic commitment, uh, and the way that that actually happens is through this paradox of Israel's failure uh, and the Lord's restoration and mercy, which is exactly what Moses is talking about here. That's helpful. After this uh, pr prospective prophecy about what's going to happen to Israel in the future, then uh, verse 32 and going down to verse 39, there's this retrospective. Moses urges Israel to think back to the first days 
all the way back to the day when God created a man on the earth, Adam on the earth. Uh, and uh, he's, he's uh, reminding them of the uniqueness of, uh, of the Lord and what the Lord has done. Uh, this section matches what, he's, what was said at the beginning, what we said at the beginning of this podcast with the uniqueness of the law and the uniqueness of Israel's wisdom and understanding uh, because they have received the law. Uh, verses 32 to 39 kind of pick up that same uh, topic, but with a with a different twist. And here the focus is on what the Lord has done uh, in speaking to Israel out of the midst of the fire at Sinai, in reaching into the midst, into the innards of Egypt, and taking Israel out of Egypt by trials, signs, wonders, war, a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, great terrors, a sevenfold exertion of power. Uh, by which the Lord brings Israel out of Egypt. Uh, and um, all this is done to manifest the Lord's character and to demonstrate his uniqueness to Israel. There's twice here that uh, the Lord says, uh, there is no other. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know Yahweh, he is God. There is no one besides him. Now, verse 39, which is kind of the conclusion of this section of the chapter, know therefore today and take it on your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and the earth beneath, there is no other. So the uniqueness of Yahweh himself is shown in the uniqueness of his actions on Israel's behalf, and in particular in the word that he gives at Sinai uh, and in the rescue of Israel out of Egypt. Yeah, It's striking also how confident Moses is here because he really appeals to Israel to ask, ask, do research, do an investigation, you know, conduct an inquiry and just, you know, all the way back to Adam, all the way back to creation, any of the nations is, and then there's, there's these questions. Is there any other God like this who's done what Yahweh has done for us? Anything. There's a great deal of uh, confidence that Moses has in exhorting the people that the Lord is incomparable to any of the other God's uh, whether real or imagined, of the nations. And he's done all this for you before your eyes, verse 34, and showed it to you that he is Yahweh, your God, and there's no one beside him. Uh, this is kind of a remarkable ending to the sermon, and pretty important, I would think, in the theology of Deuteronomy uh, and, and what's to come because he's going to exhort everybody to obey the rituals and statutes of the Lord. And the reason for, that they should do that is because of the incomparability of Yahweh and what he has, what he should mean to them. Yeah. It's a very interesting verse, isn't it? 32 um, uh, talking about whether such a great thing as this has ever happened um, or was ever heard of, you know, it's, it's so commonly said, isn't it, if you kind of look at secular accounts of Israel's history, it's very often said there was nothing so unique um, about Israel. All the nations had their deities and had their gods and traditions and histories, and there's, there's nothing so unique about Israel's story. But, I mean, quite apart from the fact that, I mean, in all the extant accounts of nations histories that I'm aware of. There's nothing like an Exodus um, story, not that it's even a particularly glamorous story that you'd sort of want to 
having your past anyway. You know, we were this downtrodden bunch of slaves. It's not kind of very conducive to national pride, is it? But I mean, quite apart from the fact that I'm, I'm not aware of any stories um, like that that we've actually got record of. Um, Moses is saying, and he, he intends this obviously to have some force. Um, this kind of thing has never even been heard of, and and so quite apart from the fact that of whether you think this even happened, Moses is, is saying this doesn't even exist like as a myth elsewhere, a, a story of this grandeur and, and remarkable nature. And um, yeah, I, I just find that a really interesting um, feature of verse thirty-two. Yeah, I, th- I think it's yeah, that's really interesting, uh, James. And I think it's it's also important to recognize that he's talking about two different episodes in the Exodus story. Uh, verse thirty-four is talking about the actual rescue of Israel from Egypt, but verse thirty-three is also it's the Sinai. As any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire, as you have heard it and survived. Uh, so that's part of the that's one of the um, unprecedented events in Israel's experience. Whatever we might say, I mean, we have some analogies to Exodus stories earlier in Deuteronomy. Moses has talked about these, as Jeff pointed out. Uh, there's uh, there's a connect. Uh, there's uh, other nations that have been given lands. Uh, they've conquered lands, been given lands. They aren't described as having been brought out of another people. Uh, but Sinai is is an utterly unique event. Even if you could find analogies to Exodus, you could say Sinai is even is an equally unique event, at least where you have a God who appears in this terrifying theophany and then speaks words to his people uh, and gives them the kinds of commandments that he gives on on Mount Sinai. So again, we go back to the earlier discussion of the incomparability of Israel being uh, the the, the fact that they possess this law uh, and, and as they do it, it's not just possession of law, as Paul points out a number of times in Romans, it's not just possession of the law, but it's the doing of the law that makes them the wise people that will impress the Gentiles. And I want to—I wanted also to highlight uh, again, verse thirty-seven, the stress that uh, Moses places on the love that Yahweh had for the fathers. Uh, that's where it brings it out explicitly in verse thirty-seven. He loved your fathers; he chose their seed. Uh, so this connection between love and choice. The fact that the love is a intergenerational love, uh, it's like the Godfather. If the Godfather is your patron, he's not just your patron, but he claims your children too. He's going to do favors for your children. Of course, they're obligated to him too. But there's this ongoing uh, intergenerational commitment the Lord has. Uh, that uh, emphasis on the Lord's love for his people, and especially the emphasis on choice, that is something that's developed in Deuteronomy as it is nowhere else in the Pentateuch. Uh, this Deuteronomy is the election book of the Pentateuch, uh, and that election, that choice of the seed is rooted in the love that he had for the fathers. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
that's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.